So I was diagnosed with ADHD and learning disabilities before it was cool. Uh, this is about back in the late 70s. And it was new. And I remember very specifically going to the resource center, this learning center that was in my hometown of Longmont. And I'd really struggled in fourth grade. And so it was in fifth grade that my mom and dad decided that they would get me tested. I remember lots of the tests, but the main thing that I remember about taking the test, spending a whole day at this testing center, was how nice the people were, how kind they were, how, how, um, how they praised me when I did things. Uh, and then, of course, afterwards, uh, when, my, when my results came back and my mom went in to ask them and say, so is he this ADHD thing. They were like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I had a lot of learning disabilities. And, and when I was told about these things, uh, and I was an early, I was an early riddle and taker, but when I was told specifically about the learning disabilities, I don't ever remember really knowing what that meant. Just that I had trouble learning some things. And math has always stuck out to me as something that I had trouble learning. And what it always felt like to me, and this is something that I want parents to really understand, is that in the, in the, in the late 70s and the early base, uh, 80s, strength-based conversations with your child were still something that we were discovering. So it, it very much became a piece about you have disabilities, this is a dis-ease. This is a, a struggle you have, and you may always have it. And we're going to try to change your diet. And we're going to have these bills. And quite frankly, I don't know if I would have made it through high school or junior high without Ritalin. Um, and I, so, so that, that experience has its own pros and cons, and I'll talk about the other side of it uh, at, a, at a later date. But as a parent, what I, what I really want to say about being a child with special needs, being a child who had learning disabilities and needed special help, was that now that I'm an adult, being ADHD serves me. I know how to utilize my ability to create equality in every single thing. Now, where that's a problem is it's hard for me to focus on one thing because that bird is also as important and the sound of the car and my fish tank is also important and thinking about what I'm doing tomorrow is also as equally important as the task I'm currently on. And that doesn't work for school. So the message is, did I have disabilities or was I a different learner? Did I need different kinds of teachers? To help answer that question, my guest today is Dr. Elaine Fogel-Schneider. And uh, she and uh, Dr. Deborah Ross Swain have just finished their book, Confidence and Joy. And this book is going to help parents get the language, get the strength-based concepts around the struggles their kids are having and help them reframe this experience for kids, primarily because they're reframing it for the parent. And they're giving the parent active strategies and how to support your kid who's got differences in learning, learning disabilities, and maybe developmental delays. 
So thank you for joining me on Beyond Risk and Back. Today's podcast is called Confidence and Joy, and my guest is Dr. Elaine Fogel Schneider. Honestly, I was just working my way up to death. I thought about killing myself every day. I was using all the time, and I, that's not a sustainable lifestyle. My brother shot himself because of drugs. When you are using technology to lure children for sexual purposes, there's a couple of problems that concern me. But I remember feeling kind of relieved after hurting myself. Do you have any idea how much you were worth? I like to say it this way, great people are really built in the furnace of affliction. Our teens are navigating a world of information anarchy and increased stress and pressure. Drugs are glorified more than ever before and there seems to be a suicide option that didn't exist prior. As adults, we are responsible to provide the help at-risk teens need. Have teens changed or is it just the world they live in that's different? Is this why so many teens are traumatized or triggered? My name is Aaron Huey and in 2009, I opened a home for these teens with the hopes of giving them a second chance at creating the life we all know they deserve. Now I want to give parents the information that contributed to our success and to support them in navigating the at-risk world. These are the stories told by the teens and the techniques used by experts to help them. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. Dr. Elaine Fogel-Schneider, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate your time. Well, thanks for having me, Aaron. It's a joy to be here. Please let's start with your ETR, the earn the right, your, your moment in the sun, the bio, the how did you end up with the DR in front of your name. Um, tell us about yourself. Tell us about the experience that you have. Well, I think I have a little similar experience to you as far as my background, because I was a child that had a speech delay, but it wasn't really diagnosed until I was in college going on to become a teacher at one point. So I struggled with my own speech and what people thought of me, um, remembering sitting around the table when I was actually a young child before kindergarten, actually. And my mother's friends asked me to say, old mother witch, and I said, old mother Mitch. And they started laughing and they thought that was the funniest thing. But for me, as the person saying it, I didn't feel that way. I felt embarrassed and that I wasn't good enough and that maybe there was something wrong with me because why are they laughing at me? I didn't get that they were laughing with me at all. So my background begins there and then onward as a speech and language pathologist because I once got into the training um, for myself, I thought, hmm, this is a nice field. I, I would like to do that myself. So I went on to that and um, have been working with children uh, for a very long time in school systems, in private cl clinics, and uh, had my own practice, got on into this whole field because we see that children today are in schools and that schools are not promoting confidence and joy with children, they're promoting test scores. And I think that really is something that concerns me and concerns a lot of parents who notice there's something not right with their child and is this what can they do to help them it's pretty tough uh, having having worked in schools a lot I come from a family of teachers uh, the public school system is so overburdened and 
overwhelmed and underfunded. Um, we can never ever accuse these teachers of being in it for the money. <laughs> uh, and, and while that's a joke, it's really not a joke. They're, they're so unbelievably strapped for resources for their own lives and then for these massive classrooms that they're, they're put into. And then, the, I mean, the system is broken. The people within the system are trying to teach and help and the system is completely defunct and this it is it is felt for the longest time that there's a one size fits all paradigm that has to be shattered for any kid to get the type of attention that would truly create a, a, a an educated person a good a well educated person a good learner is that is that is that ring I, I see that all the time, working with children, assessing children. I do that daily. What I find out is that we, the parents themselves go to the teachers, are looking for assistance. And what happens is that the teachers, like you said, are so immersed in the amount of work they have in the student overload that it's not that easy to meet the needs of each child that's in the classroom. So with that being said, I want to I jump into the work that you do. How do you begin to recognize that a child actually has a need um, outside uh, the, 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 the normal classroom energy that's going on as a parent and as a teacher? Because I've got both parents and teachers listening to this podcast. What's, what are the signs that this kid is... They're, they're stringing along. They're copying on the side. They don't actually know how to read. They're, they're really good at faking it and hiding in the corner. You know, you say something so um, enlightening here because so many times the child, when they're younger as a preschooler, they seem to be getting along just fine. You know, they're playing in the sand. They're climbing up the slide. They're swinging. They, they don't have these, quote, symptoms or signs because the demands are not made of them to sit and to look at a book and to read and to decode what they're reading and then to even go on to spelling. We don't know about these types of difficulties until the child does get into school. And many times, like you were saying, that it was until the you know third or fourth grade, many children are suffering in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, until the light goes off and someone is saying, wait a minute, my child is not learning like your other children in the classroom. There's something we need to do. And we see that the signs are there, but many times they're not detected until the child is in an academic setting. They have to sit and read. They have to try to figure out what the book, the story was about. And we see that it gets worse and worse from kindergarten on up if the child has those difficulties. And, and those signs are, you know, they're struggling. They may look like a child who's not finishing their work. The teacher may um, see that they're having a difficult time focusing on the assignment. They get up out of their seat. They can't sit in a circle when it's circle time to listen to a story. They have to bang on something. They have to get a lot of deep pressure in their system to feel that they can self-regulate themselves. So there are many different little signs along the way, but many times they get seen more noticeably when we have science, we have our spelling, we have our math, we have our reading that we're requiring the child to accomplish. 
You said you said the words depressure, and I like that. I think, you know, I've, I've worked with a lot of men's groups, and I've worked with a lot of uh, boys who struggle in school, as well as girls. And one of the common conversations that happens around uh, in men's groups is the idea that the education system is designed for girls, and the more we take out um, that 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 physical component. And I'm not saying girls don't suffer when we remove physical components and creative components um, and expressive components, but it does seem, at least this is the conversations that I've had, that girls are more able to do what the teacher says, stay in a circle and listen attentively because girls are expected to, to toe the line and play along much more than boys are. Um, and that the education system is designed for that. Do you agree with that? Or do you feel that we're dealing with the universal uh, issue for boys and girls equally here? Well, I think you can see that many more boys are in special education than girls. Um, when you look at the statistics, um, even in, in the realm of speech and language delays, we find that there are more boys that are delayed than the girls. So genetically, biologically, there are differences in learning areas that we see across the board. Uh, as far as sitting together in a classroom, um, I can see what you're saying as far as that, uh, that need for physical activity, for creativity, thinking about um, building. Uh, for example, I have one little boy that's having difficulty with mathematics, but yet put him in front of Legos, my goodness, he can build a fort and put people in there and, and he you know, calculates the angles and how many pieces he needs and, and all these different mathematical computations through his hands, through manipulation. And sometimes we're seeing that children learn differently and that we need to notice that just because you learn differently doesn't mean you're disabled. You are different. Okay, so let's let's use that as a bridge to get uh, uh, back to talking about the, the the title of your book, this this confidence and joy, which is something that. Uh, the kids that end up coming into our facility, that is the first thing that we have to search for is, can we reawaken the love of learning? Can we reawaken the confidence in the fact that they actually do know something? And Einstein, I believe it was Einstein who had the quote, you know, you know, test a fish on riding a bike. And of course, they're going to think they're a failure. And, and so we talked about you know, yes, there's different learning styles. I find it, I find it interesting that more boys are in, um, uh, you know, learning-assisted programs and stuff like that. And, again, I'm not taking away the fact that girls need physical activity and creative outlet and expressive uh, education and, and, obviously, emotional education is, is, is a massive lack. But now let's get to the book. Uh, confidence and joy. So why are confidence and joy so important for kids with learning differences? Because so many times children with learning differences have the confidence and joy just sucked out of their very system. They are robbed of that confidence and joy because so many times they are hearing, you can't get the work done, you're not good enough. They're being compared to other children, even in their own family, as well as in the classroom. So your sister can get that done, why can't you? Or he can sit still and listen and you have to move around all the time. 
So the child is being robbed of this confidence and joy, and then that feeling of wanting to learn is just, just you know, sucked right out of their life because they feel they're a failure. They feel that they can't do anything right, that they're not, they don't measure up to their friends who may have no trouble reading or spelling, and yet they start to see that they're different. And with that difference becomes anxiety, like an angst for even going to school. Um, one little girl uh, does was having some of this anxiety, knowing that she is different, and her mom would drive her to the school, and she would have a meltdown and would not get out of the car. She just would not get out of the car, and her mother struggled day after day after day trying to get her to go to the school. Because she was such a failure in her own eyes, didn't measure up, she didn't want to go to school. She had anxiety around it, and she needed to get some confidence in herself, some joy about herself so that she would go to school. And they actually, she and the teacher figured out, the parent and the teacher figured out a plan for her that was very successful that actually got her out of the car. I, I have to say that in fourth grade that I was talking about struggling, uh, I know my mom and I will laugh about this now, but every day, just as math class started, I was in the nurse's office with a stomachache and calling my mom. And some days I sat through math and miracle, you know, miracle of miracles was fine <laughs> once that hour was over. Or sometimes mom came and picked me up. Um, that was a big part of my fourth grade year. Now, having said that, I got diagnosed with learning disabilities, and we're not just talking about learning disabilities. We're also talking about learning differences. And I want to understand where you see the difference. How, and, and is one better than the other? Is one easier than the other? And how do you intervene in, so that you can find out which, which is which? Well, there is the, the learning difference, looking at that, is that every child learns in their own way. Um, you have a difference, a learning difference, when you may have difficulty in your own learning style. For example, we can be visual learners, we can be auditory learners, we can be kinesthetic where we need to touch and feel, or you can be a combination of all these different learning styles. But what comes into play is when a child has this difference and it interferes with his ability to learn. So a child with a learning difference can be very bright and very smart and can pass tests for intellect, cognition, for thinking. But it's when they have to adapt their learning to the school situation and to spelling and to math, like you had difficulty with mathematics, as you're talking about, that's when the difference comes across. But there may not be a difference that raises to the bar of needing a special education or IEP, an individual education program. These are children that might be under the radar. They're sitting in the classroom. They're not saying a word. They're in the bathroom when it's time for math. They're they're, uh, they look like they're wandering or that they're not focused on the work. They can't complete an assignment. It's not that they have such a severe disability that they need special education or they need special services, but they have a difference that's affecting their way of learning. So we have a combination here. We have differences and we have disabilities. The learning disability is something that the American Disability Act idea, individuals uh, with that Disability Education Act gave the right to children who are academically suffering to have special education, to have supports in place. 
And there are also those children that may not rise to the bar of needing a full-blown IEP, but they may need what we call a 504, which is a way of accommodating their needs in the classroom. So for a child, for example, that's having trouble reading, um, if you give them extra time to read, say a quiz that they're taking, if you give them extra time, then they will do better. So maybe the 504 would say when John has an exam, he is to get additional testing time. Or maybe he needs to be in a room all by himself because he's too easily distracted by all the other children in the classroom and all the noises. So we take a look at the distinction between difference and disability because my co-author and I felt that there were so many children with differences that were being missed, that were not being taken care of in the way they need to be taken care of so that they can su succeed. And these are the children that are struggling, that have failures, that think they're just not good enough. So you, you mentioned uh, an IEP, an individual education plan, and you write extensively about 504s in your book. Um, and I want, I, my facility has a school. We have an accredited school here at Fire Mountain, a middle school and a high school. And uh, as, our, as our last principal came through, um, of course, as, as we became more accredited and more legitimized as, a, as a, uh, an education program, the, the IEPs and the 504s began to follow, follow in with the kids. And as, as teachers, we were all um, kind of under orders all of a sudden, instead of just kind of doing it our own way and hoping we hit each kid. And suddenly there was a series of rules we had to follow. And I believe if I'm, if I'm right, and um, I may not be, 504s can follow you all the way through college. Is that accurate? I believe so. 504s are something that are showing you, we're showing the education system what accommodations you need. And I do know that there are students in college because I also teach at a university and I have students in my classroom that are getting specialized care for, for example, test taking. Uh, one child, one student that had a hearing loss had a, a note taker that was part of her academic plan. So somebody could take the notes for her. She had someone who was sign, uh, sign language, sign reader, um, so that in her class, there was other people with her that would prevent um, <laughs> presenting her with sign language so that she could understand what I was saying as I talked about communication disorders. And so, yes, it does travel with you. And there are systems in place for students who are in college to receive these additional services. Who issues the, um, the 504 and who issues the IEP? Do you have to have a therapist? Is it the district that does it? Is it the counselors at the school? And I also, just on top of this, can you also speak to, um, as I was discussing this the other day, one of the things I heard, so it's rumor, is that schools are hesitant to uh, create a 504 because it requires extra funding, which means they have to spend money out of the budget on your child for a 504. So they tend to be pretty stingy. <laughs> First question is, um, who issues the 504? Who issues the IEP? Are they limiting 504s due to monetary constraints? And then how do you advocate? And we can, advocacy is going to be a big one, I know, because it's a major part of your book. Yes. 
Well, okay, so we're going to look at IEPs. It's a legal document, okay? If you have a child that is, uh, will be assessed through the school district, um, and you know, I'd like to let parents also know that children under the age of three may, or even under the age of five, most people think, okay, this is good when my child gets into kindergarten. This is when he'll get special education if he needs it or services. But I want families to know that there are laws in place, a federal law that allows children from birth to three to have intervention and also from three to five preschoolers. So if a family feels that their child has these difficulties, then they can go to their school district and request an assessment. Everything starts with the assessment. It starts with the parent's request or perhaps a teacher's request if the child's already in the school. But it needs to be requested and then the schools have legal obligation to assess the child. And usually um, I'm working at a school district also where I do consulting work. And on my team, I have an interdisciplinary team of a psychologist, myself as a speech and language pathologist, we have a nurse, we have a special ed teacher, and even a general ed teacher that assess this child and come up with a total report for the families of what we've observed to determine if the child has a learning, uh, is going to need special education. One of the 13 factors, they can have orthopedic handicaps, they can be visually impaired, they can have uh, learning difficulties, but we come up with um, a plan for the child. We do not diagnose in a school district, they do not diagnose, but they, we will come up with a plan to meet the child's needs. We see lots of children right now on the autism spectrum that are receiving services, we see children that um, may have other difficulties, related services, speech and language that are also receiving services. So the IEP is an official legal document. It's drawn up by the team. The parent is a very important part of the team. And when that document is signed, it's signed by the parent who will agree to what the goals are for their child because it's a written document where it lists the baseline of the child, how the child performed at the assessment. It's listing how they scored on the various tests that were standardized tools that were used to determine the level of the child. And then we're also looking at what would be the goals for the child and the best place that those goals could be met to determine where the child will meet those needs, whether it's in a special day class, whether it's getting other types of services, or perhaps the school district will not offer services, at which point we see many children that have differences, but may not come to the level of severity that is needed to be in special education. Now, so if, if the parent goes through the steps, and I want to go through them again, that was great. You, you request an assessment. The schools have to do the assessment. You receive the report, and then you, um, you may get a plan unless the school decides uh, that, that all these, these eyes and ears and brains are looking at the, at the kids' learning abilities. Um, the school decides whether or not they're going to to issue a plan that the parent either agrees or, or doesn't agree with and you know some change could be made. So if there's not a plan offered because they're not seeing disability, then we're back to learning differences. Okay, is that, is, am I right so far? You're right there. Just wanna make sure that the parent is an equal partner in this. Right. 
So it's not something that's thrown onto the parent, but the parent is part of the discussion about the needs for their own child. Right. So the parent, that parent has to take a part in this. You can't shuffle them off to the school and let the school do all the work. Makes perfect sense. So now I get a thing back and it's just saying my kids got some learning differences. Now, whether, whether I get, whether I get the uh, uh, learning differences or there's some actual disabilities, you talk a lot about, um, the confidence and joy robbers. And I, and I, and so now, now I have a plan I'm working with, or maybe I don't, but the teachers are aware that there's some differences involved. And now I've got to navigate these joy robbers. So, so tell me, tell me what they are. And specifically teachers, is it other kids? Is it the material itself? Is it the curriculum? Is it the teaching style that we've somehow all seem to agree on? What are my joy robbers here? Yeah, there, there are so many joy robbers that come along. Um, and just before I get into that, I just want to make sure that with that IEP that we realize that parents are together with the team in a meeting. There's a meeting that occurs there. It's not just the teachers tell you. The family right. are there for a meeting. And if they can't make the meeting, it could even be done over the phone. But they have to sign off onto that plan. Really quick, is the child involved in the meeting as well? So, yes, the child can be there. For younger children, they may not be there for a three-year-old or a four-year-old. But for the older children, when I've worked in school systems with older junior high and high school, many of those children are coming to the IEP meetings. Because once an IEP is in place, and when there's a subsequent triennial every three years, when the team comes back and does measurement testing, then standardized testing, the child can be there as well to see if that needs to be changed, the goals that are on the IEP. And then yearly, these goals are also looked at. So the IEP is a, it's a process. It's not just a piece of paper. And so the robbers that you're asking about come at you at any time, at any place. You can have joy robbers, for example, in school where a teacher will tell the child, what's wrong with you? You can't get your homework done. You've had an hour, just like everybody else. You're going to stay in at recess. They're going out to play. You're going to have to stay here and get your work done. That's a joy robber right there. The child doesn't have the ability to be focused. If he did, he would. He certainly wants to go out and play with his you know, classmates. So we've got robbers that can occur in the school system itself by teachers that are not sure of the child's skills and and I think that they're malingering when really they're not doing it on purpose. They have a deficit. They have a difficulty that needs to be addressed. You can even have it, I've heard, when parents take their kids to, say, soccer. You know, here's an extracurricular activity. They're going out to play with their, you know, team, and they are now not in academics. They don't have to spell. They don't have to read. They can just play a sport. And because they may have attention deficit activity disorder, there they are not looking at the coach and now the coach calls them out and starts reprimanding them in front of their other teammates. That can be a joy robber. You know, like you're not listening to me. You can't follow the drill. What's wrong with you? I only gave you three steps to do. So that can occur at any time in an extracurricular activity, which we promote highly in our book because this many times is a way a child who has a difference can excel 
and they feel confident, they feel joyful, they did something, they can accomplish something, and, and they're being noticed for that. Um, so these joy robbers can happen any place. It can happen within the family. When a parent sees that their, let's say their son is fidgeting at the table and he just can't seem to keep his back up straight and he's kind of caved in and he's turned in his seat and when it comes time to eat, he can't use a fork or a spoon. He's using his fingers where there's his sister who's just sitting upright and she's able to use her fork. She may be a couple of years even younger than the boy, than their son. So then they start to compare. Oh. What's wrong with you? Can't you sit up? Your sister can do it. So then there becomes comparisons within the family. That's also a joy robber. So robbing the joy out of a child really reduces their, that spark for creativity, for learning, because all children want to learn. All children, it's a wonderful world to you know, wake up and see what are we going to explore today. It's that excitement. It's that happiness. And so we see that when parents or teachers or coaches or any people out in the regular community take a child and kind of knock the wind out of them, so to speak, where they're not, they're not feeling they're equal to other children, they're feeling less than. And that's a robber for that child. That robs that joy and confidence. You know, we're talking, we're talking about a, a subject I bring up a lot, um, and this is hard for parents because there's a, there's a piece of wanting your child to be, to develop normally, um, to do well in school so that you can be, you can uh, access more resources that allow you better chances for success. That's, that's my most plain way of saying why parents won't want the best for their children. And it brings up the subject, like I said, that I talk about with my families a lot called comparison shopping with your child, where, you know, you, you see the older sister able to sit up straight and Phil over there can get good grades. And, and they also do it in the negative way as they're saying, you're acting like this, you know, the, the misbehaving kid down the street, you know, stop acting like so, such and so down the street. Um, and, and parents forget that other parents do that using your child as an example of things as well. And, and you know, when, when I hear families say, you know, I don't like the, the friends that my kids hang around with, they're a bunch of bad eggs, they make bad decisions. Other parents are saying that about their kids group that includes your child. So this comparison shopping bit, on on our kids when we look at our kids behavior and compare it to other kids learning compare it to others kids growth compared to others it helps nothing it supports nothing it it allows for nothing so if we've got we've got parents listening to the show probably might be feeling a little guilty right now we've got parents who maybe have avoided the comparison bit um and maybe the parents themselves, or maybe there's, there's not a teacher or there's not a coach who's been, you know, actively stealing consciously or subconsciously this, this joy and confidence from this child. But the issues are still happening. And now we come to advocacy because a parent knowing how to get help. Every single parent who comes through our program is just like, I didn't know this was here. 
I didn't know this existed in Colorado. I didn't know. And we sit them in the parents weekend and there's 30 parents staring at each other going, you, you're, you're dealing with it too. You're, Oh my God. I thought, and we have this concept as parents where we really think we are permanently unique, that, that we are so, our situation is so special. No one could possibly understand it and it's going to kill us. And you you talk a lot about advocacy. You have a lot of uh, pieces in here, literally like lists of things you can do. And for me, that list is the be all end all, that checklist of advocacy. So doc, can you tell us what the checklist of advocacy is? Sure I can. The ad, first of all, knowing that if you want to, you need to find a way to develop some support. I always say there's strength in numbers. So finding a way, don't think you have to do it by yourself. That's number one. Because so many times you're so belabored with what am I going to do? Where do I go? Who do I ask? Where, you know, you, that's the first thing. What, maybe you can find somebody that has, have a, that has a child with the same kind of situation you're facing. Find out what they've done. What programs have they found out about? Where have they been successful? So looking at who's available in your community, maybe in your own circle of friends or maybe in a club that you belong to, who's there that you see that also has a child similar to the child issues that you're faced with? Because you are not alone. You know that there are more children that have these types of issues than children that do not. There are children that are suffering every day because they're not being discovered that they have these issues and they have these needs. So as a parent, don't think that you are alone. Find a group, find an, another person and join forces. That's a very important thing to do. Also, you want to find out who might be in the school already. You know, teachers are overwhelmed. Other people's professionals are overwhelmed with so many students in their caseload, but there are other people that really want to help. And as you were talking about, people that go into the teaching profession or the therapy profession are genuinely caring and want to help others. So you may find, make yourself a team, develop an advocacy team. So it's not just you yourself, but maybe there's a teacher that would like to go to bat for you, that would like to help out with guiding you. Maybe there's a doctor that you see that you take your child to, a professional, or maybe there's even a therapist in the school, a speech and language therapist that knows that there are other clubs or other tutoring opportunities that you can get involved with for your child. So that's building a team. You want to try to build a team of advocacy support, of advocacy. And I call it building a stellar team because you just don't want the average person on the team because advocacy is not for wimps. It is something that is an ongoing process that you just don't do it once and everything is taken care of. And that's what parents always tell me when I'm working and coaching with them is, wait a minute, I have to do this again? Yes, <laughs> you do have to do it again because it just doesn't happen once. The child is moving from one class to another class, one grade to another grade. You have to follow up continually. It's not, I do it now and it's done forever. So it's getting that team of people that can help support you so you're not alone. You want to determine who's the team leader, who's going to be the leader of this team. So if it's the parent, then you have to say, I'll be the leader, step up to that, 
and realize that you'll be the one who'll be in charge of getting the meeting to happen. If there is an IEP coming up or something has to happen at school, can all these people come with you as added support? Or can you just do a telephone conference before so that people can give you suggestions of what to say? Um, I just had an IEP a week ago and the parent brought one of her friends with her who had been a teacher before and she utilized her friend's services as being a teacher as her support at the meeting. And these are ways that parents can develop that team of advocacy that will help them and guide them. And then it's finding out what are the, what are the resources in the community doing some homework, seeing what's out there, asking questions of the counselors, of teachers, of your physician, and seeing what kind of programs are out there. Lots of children will need additional tutoring. They may not be able to get all the services they need in a school system. As we're talking about, teachers mean to do their best, but they're always have so much more they need to do than they have time to do. So you may find you have to get additional tutoring I have families that go to occupational therapists. I have families that go to speech and language pathologists. They get other services, behavioral services, but they're not getting them in the school system. So be prepared that you may have to discover, does my insurance pay for these services? It's a very important part. Many insurance companies now are offering services for children who are on the autism spectrum, if they've been diagnosed with autism. This is very new in our educational system where, where insurance companies are providing services for these children. So parents need to discover, does their insurance company cover for some of these services that a school district does not provide? You know, the school district cannot be the be-all, end-all for all the services for one child. They just are, don't have the resources many times. They're strapped. They may have to do things in groups instead of one-on-one. And many of these children need more of the one-on-one setting to help guide them in their own learning style. This is a, it's a lot. And, and I, and I, I'll 100% agree with you that when you, when as a parent, you hit that part where you're like, wow, I, this is a lot. The answer is yes, it is. And then they go through it and the child changes grades and changes schools and you got to go through it again. Yes, you do. Um, so thank you for that. Thank you for the honesty about that. Doc, it's time for some housekeeping time as we're, as we're rounding uh, around here to the edge. I know parents are going to want to contact you. I want, and I know that uh, um, you know, there might be some schools listening that, that want you to come talk with the parents. So let's start with, uh, with the most outer thing. How does someone contact you and, wor- and work with you or get their child with you? What is your primary source of contact? Well, there's a website, confidencejoy.com. So it's C-O-N-F-I-D-E-N-C-E-J-O-Y.com. And they can contact me or my co-author, and we'll be happy to respond uh, to their questions. They can um, find me. I also have another uh, email address if they want to find, just email me directly. It would be Dr. Elaine, that's D-R-E-L-A-I-N-E, at ask. Dr. Elaine, A-S-K-D-R-E-L-A-I-N-E.com. And I'll be happy to respond that way as well. And yes, we would be happy, very happy to provide uh, trainings for schools, for families, for parent groups, um, giving pointers on ways that we can gain the success for these children and bring back the joy and confidence 
that they so rightly deserve to have each and every day and bring that joy and confidence to the parent as well. Can people find you guys on Facebook as well? Yes, they can find us on Facebook. Uh, just look for Dr. Elaine Fogel Schneider or De- Dr. Deborah Ross Swain, and they can find us there as well. Mm-hmm. All right. So the book is Confidence and Joy, Success Strategies for Kids with Learning Differences. This is a step-by-step guidebook for parents um, and professionals by Dr. Deborah Ross Swain and Dr. Elaine Fogel-Schneider. Uh, Dr. Elaine, thank you so much for being here. This is a big topic. This is a deep topic. Um, There's so many things involved here, developmental delays, environmental, neurological. This is is a deep, deep subject. And I think parents have a lot uh, to learn from you guys. And I have a question that is a, a complete sidebar left hook question about speech pathology. And it's something I heard many years ago. And if there's a parent who's concerned about their kid's speech, um, it is something I heard a long time ago and it made perfect sense. So I just want to ask you, and I certainly know it might be a deeper question than a yes or no answer. Um, how often is speech uh how often are speech struggles related to hearing struggles? That's a really great question. Many times we find that children go undiagnosed with having hearing um, loss through ear infections. Um, we know that there's the newborn hearing screenings that can detect if a child is deaf, um, but that also we have to see that there are many children have colds, lots of infections and they cannot hear. And when they're not hearing, they're not producing speech sounds. They can't hear the speech sounds of others and they don't hear their own speech sounds. And so their speech can be very, very unclear. Um, So there is a correlation between hearing and speech. And we also know that there are other areas now looking at auditory processing disorders as well. Children may not be able to understand the information that is being spoken to them. And so they have difficulty in the processing as well as in the physical um, hearing loss itself. Uh, like I said, that's a, I, I maybe just opened a rabbit hole in a whole nother show, but uh, I just heard that a long time ago. And I think that's, that's quite amazing. Uh, Dr. Elaine Fogelschneider, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I'm, I'm going to sign off with you. And if you just hang on the line so I can say thank you once we're off the air, I got to do my housekeeping. Uh, parents, teachers, clinicians, confidence and joy. Dr. Deborah Ross Swain and Dr. Elaine Fogelschneider. This is available on Amazon, Doc? Yes, it is. It's available right. on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Great, great. Okay, folks. Uh, Again, thanks to my guests, as always. Thanks to uh, Kristen Walker, the boss god of Mental Health News Radio, and uh, and Daniel, my amazing editor. Um, folks, I want to let you know two things uh, coming up. On February 8th, I have an open house that I'm giving here at Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center. So you can come by and see actually what we're doing. It's from 10.30 a.m. to 1.30 uh, p.m. We are serving lunch. I need an RSVP to my email address, which I'll give at the end. Also, it has been decided by executive order that we are offering the Parents Weekend, which is the weekend. It is the information we give to every family 
as a requirement for their child's attendance at our program. The parents are required to come to our parents weekend. We have decided to make that a public event and the first one will be held at the end of March. Uh, ticket information, uh, location information uh, will all be revealed soon. But if you are interested, please email me. Again, email address will provide it in just a second. It is a two-day event with myself, uh, the executive director of our program, and some incredible experts that I'll be bringing on. This program is a two-day chalk-filled parent extravaganza. No, your kids cannot come. This is for the adults. I have been speaking at schools a lot, and if you would like me to speak at your school, either email me or talk to your counselor and have your counselor contact me. Um, and my email address is Aaron, A-A-R-O-N, at firemountainprograms.com. That's Aaron at firemountainprograms.com. If you are interested in being a sponsor on our show, you can contact me as well. I also want you to email me questions that I can talk about on the show and, of course, show ideas. The mantra, families, parents, teachers, clinicians, is you take care of yourself first, you take care of your adult relationship second. You take care of your children third. Because when we do that, we are in the best possible space to deal with anything our children can throw us. Listen, like, subscribe, and share. And thank you very much to my guest, Dr. Elaine Fogel-Schneider. Um, Dr. Elaine, one more time, thank you for the information. That was big stuff. That was, uh, that was huge information. And I know people have a lot to learn from you. So thank you for being on Beyond Risk and back with me this week. And thank you so much for having me, Aaron. And I hope I could help parents who are listening today. That's my mm -hmm. pleasure and joy. Thank you. Fantastic. I'm sure you did. Folks, we will see you next week on Beyond Risk and Back. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beyond Risk and Back. Join us each week for your connection to experts in adolescent health and wellness, recovery, and responsibility. And also to listen to teens talk about their lives in crisis. For more information on our program for struggling teens or me, please go to firemountainprograms.com, join us on Facebook at Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center, or at Beyond Risk and Back. Visit our YouTube channel at Fire Mountain RTC for even more support with our parent training videos. Special thanks to Mental Health News Radio for their continued love and support of our program. Please go to mentalhealthnewsradio.com to see all of their podcasts. Feel free to email me at Aaron at firemountainprograms.com.